Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Good evening. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq al and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. If you are new to Radio Islam, we welcome you to the family, to the Radio Islam family. Thanks for tuning in. You can keep up with us by following and liking us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And you can catch up on all those episodes you might have missed. And once you hear them, you're going to re- want to revisit them and hopefully you'll share those. And you'll find us wherever you get your podcast. So that's SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, or TuneIn. You will find us at Radio Islam USA. That is at Radio Islam USA. So, Radio Islam family, welcome to another week. I hope the day has been good. Uh, happy Monday. Hope you had a great weekend. Uh, if you would like to give us a call uh, throughout the course of tonight's uh, show, give us. you can do so at 312-750-1178. That is 312-750-1178. Okay. Uh, Radio Islam family, we are fast approaching. Uh, whether you are, whether you are uh, Muslim or uh, Christian or uh, whatever your faith uh, tradition is, you know that um, that we as Muslims that we are fast approaching. Or you may not know, but we are fast approaching the month of Ramadan, and this is a very uh, this is this is a really special time and. And we get to focus on a lot of things that sometimes we we let get get by us. Uh, it's a time for us to connect back to our our spiritual tradition, uh, to to flex the muscles that we may have let uh, atrophy a bit. Um, and one of the things that we want to talk about tonight, um, and we're probably going to be talking about this subject throughout this month, off and on. And that is one of the things that's really um, I think integral to showing the humanity uh, of Islam is that there uh, that we have these wonderful examples of people who use their wealth, who use their resources to free others from the burden of oppression, from the burden of uh, from the burden of slavery, uh, in particular. Now, though, and I'll, I'll give you one: um, Abu Bakr Sadiq. Uh, may God be pleased with him. Uh, he was one who spent a great deal of his own, of his. He spent his 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 resources, his his money. Um, he depleted his, his resources in propagation of the religion in a way that it wasn't just about lip service. It was about actually freeing people, giving and to free somebody is to give them their agency back. Is to give them their dignity. Uh, is to allow them to join. The community is to allow them to to have a voice, and he was he was uh, he was a shining example of that. And although we don't have, or at least we don't think we have slavery today, we do know that there are places in the world where slavery still exists. And without going too far off topic and making this really broad, I want to make this very very uh, specific. And to the point within the United States context, all right, for us present here today. So slavery, as we know, uh, according to the 13th Amendment, is it is allowed 
right? There's a loophole for it. And it is allowed when it is allowed for those who are in the, um, those who are in prison, right? They don't have the, the agency. They don't have the freedom of movement. They don't have the freedom to, you know, to go about as they please, uh, to, to do what they want to do. The things that we take for granted, you know, going outside when you want to, going to a restaurant, they don't have that freedom. Now, what, what's interesting about prison, what's interesting is about this idea of uh, how we refer to it a lot of times, well, not all of us, some of us refer to it as modern-day slavery. Uh, and the interesting thing about this is that for all of those people who are in, imprisoned or who have their movement uh, denied, who are uh, under the uh, under lock and key, that quite a few, I'm not going to say quite a few, but a great percentage, a great percentage of the people that are in custody are actually awaiting trial. So to give you some of the numbers, let's kind of refresh really quickly. Um, we're aware that the United States has 4% of the world's population, but has about close to 25% of, of, the, uh, of those who are imprisoned, right, which is really, really off. Right, so we went from uh, in the 70s around 300,000, 350,000 people that were imprisoned to today, where we have well over 2. Point, was it 2.3, 2.2 million? Right, over 2 million people that are considered uh, imprisoned. Now, that's that's a whole that's a whole lot of people. And I mentioned this. I'm tying this to to Ramadan because, as I said before, there are people. Who are who are locked up, right? Who are in custody, but have actually not been. Uh, they have not had a trial. They can't make bail. And the reason that they can't make bail quite often, it's an economic uh, factor. Uh, it's economic considerations. So there is a criminalization of poverty. Now, everybody might not be aware of what the actual definition of of mass incarceration, right, and how mass incarceration uh, disproportionately affects communities of color, black and brown, uh, more so than any other community within the United States. But however you look at it, uh, mass incarceration or mass imprisonment, uh, the prison boom, uh, carceral state, whatever you want to put to it, um, we have rates of imprisonment, as I said, that far exceed any other um, developed nation. And I want to take our attention to the imprisonment. Well, I'll move our attention over to the imprisonment of of our young people in particular. So right now, right now we have over 7,000 young people that are imprisoned. And they are imprisoned not actually because they uh, committed a a crime or a felony or, or anything like that. We have about 7,000 people who are in prison right now, or young people, as I said, because they have basically done something. Um, they've, they've messed up on their probation, for lack of a, uh, lack of a better word. Uh, things like being incorrigible or running away, um, not showing up on time uh, for an appointment or th- things of that nature. These are things that have put them back inside of uh, prison. Now, that's 
that that seems that seems really crazy to me. Uh, first of all, number one, it's crazy because once you are in the system, that you are. It's very it's very rare for someone to actually go into the system and come out of the system and not have any more um, any more contact with the system, right? It's the the nature of it is such that you become. Uh, you become attached to it, and whether you are under parole or you're on parole or probation, uh, you find yourselves you find yourself existing in society with a limited with a limited um, access to your own agency, with limited freedoms, uh, where you have to uh, consent to your space, your living space being violated. You have to consent to um, uh, your your body, your person being violated, you know, in the form of uh, drug tests or um, or having to show up at specific times for uh, whatever. You, th- there are so many different criteria, so many different obligations that you have to uh, heed uh, and adhere to once you are in the system inside of the uh, inside of an institution and also outside. But there is one. I mean, there there are some silver silver linings that I want to bring up as well. And one of those is that people are starting to look more at this uh, system of mass incarceration and to see that there are there are ways that can work against it to to dismantle it to to make it so that it is not a uh, a punishment for. Uh, first of all, for poor people, uh, it's not a punishment for people who who may have made a mistake and possibly might be able to uh, to turn their lives around if they are giving given a chance that well, given that first chance that they often didn't get uh, in society in general, just by by means of the makeup of society. So one of the bright spots. Cook County Jail. Uh, which is, I think, the second or third, but one of the largest uh, correctional uh, institutions and systems in the country. Uh, I think it's second or third, but it's one of the largest in the country. And they have routinely had a um, had a population uh, in the past that exceeded ten thousand, that exceeded ten thousand people. And it was so overcrowded that people would have to sleep on mattresses in the hallways. All right, people didn't have beds. Uh, and of course, when you have situations like that, that means that you are also likely to have uh, not just it doesn't all, it doesn't just contribute to uh, health in a detrimental way, where people are more likely to uh, to get sick, pass uh, you know common colds or or any other thing like that, right? And there's a monetary, there's a monetary uh, correlation that, that or connection that goes along with that, right? Because people get sick, they got to take medicine, they have to be uh, transported uh, to and from the, um, you know, uh, infirmary. Uh, there, there are a number of things that go into um, that go in, that they go along with that, right? Now the other thing is. That's also there's also effect of uh, greater greater instances of violence, right? When people are crowded, uh, I think most fights, I shouldn't say most, but quite quite a few fights uh, have began because people are hot, 
or people are crowded. And in situations uh, where you're talking about being incarcerated, where your freedom has, has been uh, taken from you, and I don't want to put this in just a sense where I'm talking about them as if they are, um, they have no, you know, they had nothing to do with where they are, right? Because we should, I'm speaking, I'm speaking in generals, but just the, the nature of that space is one that, that leads to, or uh, it, it, it encourages, um, it encourages, encourages mix-ups, right? So you fighting, uh, and, and health issues are not are not things that would be a surprise to anybody. Now, in 2017, in 2017, an order was issued from the chief judge Timothy Evans, uh, same one for for you older folks who remember who also ran for for mayor. Um, you know, way back after uh, Harold Washington uh, had passed. And it was him and Eugene Sawyer and and, and uh, some other folks, but anyway, he's the he's chief judge for the for Cook County, and he he issued an order saying that for nonviolent offenders, that their their bail should be lowered to what they can pay. Right, so it's actually taken into consideration the financial means of the individual. Now, this is not something that has has always been done by any means, where we have constantly had, um, we've had people who have stayed in jail for years, I mean for years because they could not raise a $5,000 bail, right? And that sounds crazy to most most people, but if you can't raise, and I might have their own 5,000, it's a 10%, so it's at 500, um, and whatever the numbers are, right? But we have people who are, and to this day, who are still, who are awaiting trial um, and have not, have not been able to move on with their lives because they are behind bars because they don't have the money to pay for. Uh, they don't have the money to put up. Their families don't have the money to put up. Uh, they were already in desperate straits, which in quite a few uh, quite a few cases plays a part in the decisions that they've made that have led them uh, to commit whatever acts that they have committed. But um, another bright spot, in addition to the financial condition or financial state of the individual being taken into consideration, there's also, we have individuals and we have organizations that have begun to become much more uh, much more active and much more visible in in addressing this. So uh, one of the first ones, Chicago's own, uh, who ran for who ran for mayor, Dr. Willie Wilson. Um, he went, and I, it was covered. It was covered in the news. Uh, I think uh, it was covered in the news. I think he, I think he did it. He did it a couple of times where the where the news have you know picked it up and followed him. But he posted he posted the bond for. A number of individuals, nonviolent offenders, who were there, who were inside because they couldn't pay for it, they couldn't pay to be released. Um, and then this also leads me to an upcoming effort that we're going to be talking about. As I said, we'll be talking about this uh, more and more because 
as people of faith, as believers, one of the things that um, that we should be beholden to is this idea of protecting the uh, the liberty, uh, protecting the human dignity of those who are uh, who are oppressed, and to also to also make sure that our systems, the systems that claim to be for justice, that those systems are actually able to uh, administer justice, and that they're not uh, intentionally or not. Uh, that they're not contributing to uh, to the oppression uh, of people. So one of the efforts that's coming up is the believers bailout, um, and there this is an, an effort that um, I was just made aware of, and it's being spearheaded by a number of organizations, most notably um, at the forefront, uh, Sapello Square, and what they're going to be doing, and I believe inshallah we're going to have uh, somebody on. Uh, to talk about it uh, short, well, no, 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 not today. We will, we will be talking to Dr. Uh, Suat Abdul um, Khabir, and uh, she is the. For those of you who may not know, but she is the uh, the, the founder of Sapelo Square. Miss huh? Miss Square. Did I say Sapelo Square? No, it is Sapelo Square. And did I go back to my old bad pronunciation? Yeah, that's what I do. I go back to it. But she is the uh, she's the founder, and um, so yeah, we'll be talking about this. And the whole idea is to encourage believers to use their uh, zakat to pay their zakat toward use that money that they will pay and use it to pay for the uh, uh, bond of uh, of a brother or sister who is awaiting trial. Right now, they're going to be there's going to be a lot more information coming out that will explain as to the selection process um, and then uh, and then also about what type of supports are going to be given to those individuals once they are out because that's one of the biggest things that people don't often don't often think about when you think about somebody getting arrested you see them in the police car and they're pulling off and they're out of sight and it's out of sight out of mind but we're, what we're not really thinking about is once you are in the system, and if you can't bond out like immediately or the, the next day or two, then your whole life, depending on how you are situated, uh, your whole life can change. So if you are the breadwinner uh, in your home, that means that your family is out on the street, right? Your family has to move. You may have you've lost your 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 residence. You lose your your automobile. Your automobile. If you're paying a car note, you lose your job because most jobs are not going to sit and hold your space for you indefinitely, right? You miss a day, two days, three days, right? Your job is gone. Uh, and these are things that are you talk about devastating and changing changing your life. So, so it's something I think that uh, we definitely need to take really a real careful look at. So I'm really I'm I'm, I'm pleased that this type of effort is going on, uh, that it's going to be going, and we'll be giving you more information. We'll give you the site that you can go to. But I believe you can actually right now you can simply uh, do a Google search, I believe, for a believers bailout, and um, and at least sign up. For uh, for information on it, as a matter of fact, 
I can tell you right now. It is the, okay, believersbailout.org. Believersbailout.org. You can go there and uh, and you can get, you can at least sign up right now, but tomorrow there's going to be a rollout where they will be expo- uh, uh, giving uh, answers to the questions that all of us would normally have around um, how money is going to be, how it's going to be allocated, um, who exactly is going to be helped, and then what can you do, what can we do afterward to, su- to support uh, these individuals. And lastly, last thing I want to say is I was listening to a, uh, I believe it was, it was a TED Talk, and it was a former, no, not a former, it was a, a prosecutor. And this gentleman, gentleman was talking about, um, I guess, just having a light bulb go off, realizing that the quickest way to change the system, the quickest way to affect mass incarceration in a positive way is through the prosecutor's office. And he was really clear, and he said not even, he says in, in most cases, not the president, the mayor, the governor, um, there's really nobody that can tell the individual, for the most part, how to try their case. And he says when people come through, uh, and there's this thing that we didn't talk about. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, like I said, later on. We'll, we'll bring this back up. But this, uh, it's a term called, um, it's called jail jail churn I think that's the name of it but um, it basically just it, it, it relates to the kind of the in and out of people in the system you know and they, they're out one day then they're back the next week uh, and a lot of that is related to parole violations and uh, technical issues and things like that but uh, going back to this prosecutor the prosecutor he just mentioned what should what is not always apparent to us and that is uh, that if our prosecutors have in mind that justice does not mean it does not mean necessarily incarcerating uh, someone, especially if we're talking about nonviolent offenders, if we're talking about ways to uh, to help to restore people, to help them uh, move on with their lives, or identify resources that they might not have had that brought them into the system, then that's that's the type of justice uh, that we need. And if we have that type of approach, these numbers that we have, uh, they will drastically change. And we didn't even get into all the numbers. So I, I'm telling you right now, we, we're going to come back to it, and we'll go through the numbers. But I'll give you, um, I'll give you a link that you can check out. And there are some stats on here that will, I mean, will really, uh, I think you will be, you'll, you'll be appalled at. And if you go to prisonpolicy.org. Uh, forward slash reports and you can see uh, you'll see some of the information you'll see uh, where we're situated as a uh, as an obvious leader in the world in so many different ways Uh, but this is one way one area that America we should not be leading the world in we should not be leading the world in uh, the number of people incarcerated uh, especially considering our uh, our resources and considering our population uh, and what we profess to stand for. So that's that. Uh, believersbailout.org. Check that out. We'll talk about it uh, some more 
uh, in the coming coming days, uh, inshallah. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Dr. Mona Masood. Traffic had stopped. Pedestrians were lying on sidewalks and curled up in doorways. There was no sign of violence, no wrecks, nothing like that. It was as if the people in New York had simply decided to stop whatever they were doing and pass out. Ice coated my stomach. The invasion has started. To find out what happens next, read Percy Jackson and the Olympians by Rick Reardon. Explore new worlds and check out more cool books at your local library. And visit read.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent, one in 260,000. The odds of him having 15 career NASCAR victories, one in 1.7 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. My name is Sue Smith. I'm 38 and I work at a graphic design company. And the teenage me would tell you I wouldn't be into drawing and art if it wasn't for Big Brother's Big Sisters. My big sister showed me early on that I could do anything. And to the young me, that meant a lot. My big sister's name is Sheila, and Sheila is the reason that this 8-year-old grows up to have an amazing job as a graphic designer. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brother's Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brother's Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Radio Islam, the nation's first daily live call-in talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market. Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen. We are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming live at www.wcev1450.com. And if you are interested, which I'm sure you are, you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. That's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And you can catch up on all those podcasts that you might have missed wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find us at that same username at Radio Islam USA. Folks, if you'd like to give us a call, do so at 312-750-1178. And now we are going to go ahead and get into the the really great part of tonight's show. We are joined on the phone by Dr. Mona Masood. Uh, she is an outpatient, outpatient psychiatrist practicing at Southampton Psychiatric Associates. Uh, Dr. Masood's psychotherapy focus is in the field of psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is a form of therapy that focuses on patterns, behaviors, drives, and interpersonal relationships that were established in our developmental years that may have created maladaptive ways of dealing 
with our adult stressors and relationships today. I'm going to have a question about that. And she has a special interest in helping patients develop insight and change in lifelong patterns of maladaptive behaviors to achieve happiness and better quality of life. And she has experience treating patients with diverse sociocultural and religious backgrounds and hopes to address ways of building a productive therapeutic alliance with black Muslim patients across the racial divide. And is also, I must mention, uh, a board member of the, what is it, the Muslim Wellness Foundation. Hope I got that right. Assalamu alaikum, yes. Dr. Masood. Wa alaikum assalam, Imam. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, it is a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, before, well, I've, I've been telling folks we were going to talk about this idea of uh, a fair and lovely and some of the uh, great research that uh, the presentation that you gave last summer that I was in the audience for at the Black Muslim uh, Psychology Conference. And mm-hmm. I was just totally, you know, it was kind of jaw-dropping for me, right? So I was like, I need to go do some more reading. Uh, just hit home on so many different levels. I, I saw so many similarities between uh, that, which we're talking about, and the African-American uh, experience uh, as sure. well. But um, before we jump into that, could you just give a little bit of, uh, explain a little bit about the maladaptive um, uh, ways of, of, of dealing with things in our, me- in our developmental years? Sure. Um, so, so the thing is, um, uh, psychodynamic um, psychotherapy, which is my um, special focus in um, in psychotherapy, is um, concentrates on this concept that um, that human beings um, function as uh, creatures of habit, as it were, and that's why we have idioms such as "practice makes perfect" or even "creatures of habit." And even in Islam, we have that concept that, you know, the more we do something or consistently we do something, it becomes first a habit and then it becomes even our character. And um, that's why we pray five times a day. That's why in Islam we fast 30 days in a row. That's why we have um, small consistencies. And so that's kind of the concept in psychiatry, too, even though psychiatry is often seen as secular, that the more you do something, the more it becomes part of your character. So maladaptive patterns can happen from um, childhood if it's something that, say, through, um, you know, tough circumstances or tough relationships or even lack of relationships, we learn certain behaviors that may not be good for us, but they do allow us to survive. And those behaviors will continue, whether they are sometimes lying or sometimes they're manipulation or sometimes they're just um, anger or all of these kind of things that we see as human um, human nature problems that we use as a way of survival when we're young. If we don't properly deal with them or find closure in them, um, I think we can um, see how they can be they can manifest um, as adults in our adult relationships or our adult functioning. Mm. Okay, all right. So if you don't get it right early, you you've got to check it later, or it can have yeah, disastrous yeah. Con- consequences. Okay. So, uh, Dr. Masood, would you, uh, so first of all, I'll tell you that we have a pretty diverse um, uh, audience, um, mm-hmm. and our, uh, our the, the South Asian demographic of our audience, uh, they are familiar, most, I'm pretty sure, are familiar with this term of fair and lovely. <laughs> right. Now, our, maybe our African American, our Arab, or our, 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 our white uh, may not be as familiar. Uh, black folk know dark and lovely. 
have not heard, mm. maybe are not familiar with the idea of fair and lovely. Would you give give us a, a bit of a um, kind of a, a lesson on that? Sure. So fair and lovely, this concept is actually I, I pulled it out of um, popular culture of popular culture in the Indian subcontinent, mm-hmm. um, um, which I will be referring to as uh, desis, mm-hmm. um, and this includes um, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, and a few other. Um, um, Afghanistan, maybe. So that that area, that it's South Asian, um, we have this um, whitening cream that's sold and it's very popular in that region. That's called Fair and Lovely, mm-hmm. and um, and it is a um, so it's a skin bleacher, uh, essentially. And there's a Fair and Handsome, and there's a Fair and Lovely, but it is so commonly. Um, known there in their popular culture that it has become, uh, you know, it it is um, very much related with this idea of that the more, um, you know, fair-skinned you are, that's um, going to always be correlated with how lovely or how handsome or good-looking you are. Mm. Now, is this something that you have found is, um, is this found in large segments of those populations that you met, uh, mentioned or mm-hmm. yes okay all right um and is there uh, is there a pushback uh, against this there is there is a pushback and um i think that campaign i think you might even be having a hashtag now um it's called unfair and lovely like they're kind of you know doing a play on words there mm-hmm. where they're um they're looking at how, um, obviously, I, I, as in um, even the, you know, the, the black American population, there is going to be a variety of skin um, tones based on you know, so many di- different things, including genetics, but, uh, genetics mm-hmm. but also including the fact that, you know, um, the, that there's a history of enslavement. But in, in India and in um, Pakistan and all of that, there's also a variety. There's a spectrum of different colors um, in, you know, in our skin tone. And so oh, the fact that they gravitate or they the popular culture says that you have to be fair skinned to be lovely there's pushback with them with um uh desi people um that are of darker skin tones um because they don't feel represented they feel like they're being judged for their color and they also uh, find this to be unfair mm. now what what are the roots of this is this rooted in uh, is this rooted in a colonial um experience Mm-hmm. Yes, so exactly. That's exactly right. And that's what um, kind of my topic was at the Black Muslim Psychology Conference of last year, mm-hmm. was that this is, in fact, after a lot of, um, you know, a soul, it always starts with soul searching in, uh, in psychiatry in my field. It's always about kind of my own um, issues or grappling with my own understanding of my of physical appearance and all of that, because I am of um, Indian um, origin. My parents are Indian. I was born and raised in the United States. So I always, um, you know, saw that as being such a common thing that um, people would um, highlight skin tone and talk about um, uh, within our own race um, of the lighter skin tones being more beautiful or more have more worth. And so I looked into it myself. And yes, so my research did yield that this is based in colonialism, um, not completely, but it was definitely enhanced by colonialism. And so the thing is, just to give a brief history of what happened in India, we um, the Indian subcontinent was not India, Pakistan, or Bangladesh um, um, until the 1947, around that time when we finally gained our independence from the British Empire. Um, at that point, it was just a giant uh, land 
area um, just known as India. And um, and that was under British colonization since about, like, uh, you know, um, since the um, East India Trading Company, so 1700s, 1800s, right after the Mughal Empire, which was um, Muslim rulers. So during at that time, even, there was there was issues um, with fair um, fair skin complexion because the um, the Muslim Empire prior to British colonization was from the um, Persian area or the Ottomans, and so they were also lighter skinned than the Indian subcontinent. And then after them came the British, which were of course even more lighter skinned and European in their facial features. And all of this um, to the colonized. Um, they they wanted so much to have the privileges and the um, is, um, you know the high regard and the power essentially of the people who were ruling their country that at some point they you we subconsciously related that power comes from looking more like our colonizers so that became as we kept associating control and wealth and everything and status did um from from your research did you come across anything which indicated that the british were uh were more favorable to um to those indians who were lighter com- uh complexion um at the time and kind of created a a a dynamic an an, an unhealthy dynamic between lighter skin and darker skin uh indians at that time Yes. Well, the thing about colonization in general is that um, the, the way that people who are oppressing another or colonizing another group, mm-hmm. uh, the way they maintain power is through the divide and conquer strategy. Right. And so, it, 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 so even if whether they truly believed um, the lighter skinned um, Indian people to be of higher worth than the darker skin, it would be... Um, helpful to them and their ma- ma- uh, maintaining power in the region to create that kind of narrative. And so uh, uh, telling, uh, you know, uh, keeping um, certain people who um, look like them, but were also given um, higher status because of, of their looks or um, and all of this, like their skin color and all of that, um, allowed them to maintain um, power because it would naturally create some dissidents within the within the population itself. And and what so what I was also mentioning is lighter skinned um, Indian people during that time um, were were likely going to be mixed from the Mughal Empire, which was Ottomans and Persians, mm-hmm. and so they would be more likely um, Muslims at times. Some of them are also, also Hindu, but um, so. That also um, created that um, Hindu and Muslim divide, or at least it strengthened that divide or the racial tension and the religious tension that was happening in India anyway. So while the Muslims and Hindus are, you know, fighting with each other, they're not really checking the the colonizers, which is how the colonizers would prefer it anyway. Sure, sure. Uh, so moving to uh, to the United States. Um, mm-hmm. What has color consciousness and, and the valuation that goes along with it, uh, this idea of embracing European standards of beauty, uh, what has mm-hmm. that done to relationships here um, with other communities of color, particularly after sure. African American? Sure, and that's exactly, yeah, that, that's the relevant point there. So what happened is, so, um, most of, 
South Asian immigration to the United States, um, what it led to, especially in the maybe the 60s onwards, is that concurrently they're immigrating to the United States due to job opportunities and all of that, but also what they're coming into into the historical context of the United States is a civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And so as they're coming to this area, the civil rights movement is happening. They're, though both are minorities, what is being taught essentially or reinforced, I should say, to the immigrants, to South Asian immigrants as they're moving to the United States, is that we already have um, uh, a specific a systemic racial system here in our in our country and it is what you're seeing here which is this um pushback from Af- uh, african americans towards the reigning or the ruling white majority and the white majority again um as we had i was just discussing with the british colonizers they need to refocus that energy of uh people um protesting um to a similar divide-and-conquer rule or strategy. And so this time they decide, well, here are the African-Americans who are fighting uh, for their rights. They are speaking out, they're verbal, and they're present, and they're on the news, and you can't ignore them. And they're unapologetic, and they're fighting for something. But And here are these unassuming new immigrants to this region. And these people were going to you know, kind of boost them up. We're going to um, call them the model minority. And so then began this concept of the model minority myth, which is essentially that, oh, Asians or Indians are very successful and they are pulled themselves up um, by their bootstraps and look how they earned their way into American society. They did not protest. They were not loud. They did not try to fight anything. They were given. They were given these, um, you know, the status by by working hard for it, which is a myth. And that's why it's called the model minority myth. Because actually, what had happened is that the um, the majority, the white majority, had decided to allow that kind of narrative and that kind of status to immigrant communities in order to actually push back on the civil rights movement Um, by saying keep quiet and keep your head down and don't fight us which um, which they were praising with the immigrant community they were saying that look what the african-american community is doing and fighting back against us is only going to make you look like them and you don't want to be like them you want to be like us so this so was there a, was again this divide and conquer thing, which yeah. we already came in primed for. We already dealt with this in our own country, and so it was very familiar for us. And that goes back to my idea of patterns. Mm-hmm. And so when that pattern was already built from when they were young overseas, and then they're coming over here to a new country, even if that pattern could have been changed because we're in a new environment, it wasn't. It was triggered again because the same kind of colonizing attitude and presentation were um, brought to us again. Mm. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was about to, to jump in and say, that uh, the same scenario of divide and conquer, what should be allies. Um, well, I guess, you know, this is there's there's some forecasting goes along with any policy and recognizing who mm-hmm. would who would be, like I said, natural allies and and what can be done to make sure that uh, that 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 does not take place. 
So exactly. So when you, you you go back to this idea of patterns, and as I'm thinking about this this idea of uh, maladaptive ways of dealing with mm-hmm. uh, stressors, uh, our adult mm-hmm. stressors. So what are the things that need to take place? Um, how do we gain a healthy view? And I think that this is something that is just as um, relevant for the uh, African-American community. Um, mm-hmm. But how do, what are your thoughts on gaining a, a healthy view of self that encompasses, that is not just one archetype, but, but it encompasses many different layers, uh, but still sure. appreciate others? Absolutely. The first part of all of this is that we have to realize that we are not without fault, any of us. Mm-hmm. It is this idea that Islam also teaches us that we should be looking for things to stay humble. We stay humble by having insight, by sitting with discomfort when we are wrong, being able to acknowledge that and being able to analyze that you know, when we are, if we are making mistakes or if we have a certain view, where is this coming from? What is it causing me to do? What is it, how is it preventing my growth? And so for me, this has been part of my journey, which I encourage in other people, especially of my own race, especially with intra-religious um, discrimination between immigrant communities and um, black Muslim communities, mm-hmm. um, because that has spread, that model minority myth has also spread to our masajid. And so in this, in this case, I, I ask us to look at our own history, about our own colonization, our own patterns, and to have insight and to know that what we're doing is from somebody else's, somebody else's motive, somebody else's, um, um, you know, they're dictating it for us in terms of our colonized mind. And if we can shed that and think of our, um, think of, um, what we want for ourselves as Muslims, as human beings, and really admit when we are having unconscious or subconscious bias, or when we're feeding into the model minority myth and telling ourselves, yeah, we earned this, and not realizing that um, black um, Americans have more than earned this, and if anything, have paved the way for immigrant communities to have this um, status that they um, enjoy today, then that will allow us to, like you said, actually form empathic bonds with, um, you know, within our within our um, Muslim um, families and our communities, but also in general, and 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 redefine this idea of being woke, um, yeah. of being able, because I think that only comes from um, really analyzing of the self and understanding where our own faults lie. But I think so to answer the second part of your question and how do we, um, you know, then do this and then move forward is so we, we do, so we analyze our, ourselves and we see all of these things about ourselves. But then from there, we really have to step up. It has to not just be like, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm privileged or I have this, um, and I've really been writing the work of my, you know, African-American brothers and sisters this whole time in the United States, but also, um, but then showing up, showing up in meaningful ways, uh, um, in solidarity and um, with, with um, you know, Black Lives Matter movements and also just in our massages, just on daily basis, inclusion in, in activities and watching our um, subconscious behaviors and biases in just normal interactions. We have to start in that way, and then 
and know that the goal is, you know, for Allah's pleasure, and then the goal is for us to move forward together as a ummah. Inshallah, inshallah. Um, let me also ask, uh, in these these waning uh, moments, uh, what mm-hmm. are some of the books, uh, some of if, if there are any publications that you would recommend? Because a great deal of, of what we're talking about here, um, introspection is one thing, taking it outward is another, and a lot of times, as you said, we're talking about sitting with, sitting with uncomfortability. Um, yeah. What are, What are some of the the books that you would uh, you'd recommend for the Radio Islam family? Sure. Um, there's three books that I think would be um, really helpful. Um, one of them is so. In terms of a colonized mind or colonization and the effects of um, colonization on race, I would recommend uh, Franz Fanon. He was a um, Afro Caribbean. Um, psychiatrist, actually, from the 1800s, um, sorry, 1900s, um, and his book is called Black Skin, White Masks, and um, that's um, an excellent read if you're truly wanting to understand that time period or what goes into colonization and divide and conquer. But then if you want to understand the model minority myth, specifically to in the United States, I would read um, Ellen Wu, W-U, Ellen Wu's book, Color of Success, and she writes about specifically the Asian model minority myth and how we have um, changed from being seen as, you know, um, uh, the, the Chinese and Asians were originally seen as these workhorses of the railroads, and then all of a sudden they became the model minority. And so it kind of just shows we're pawn for this, um, uh, for whatever the majority wants us to be in, in the race wars, as it were. Mm-hmm. So um, that was an excellent read, Color of Success by Ellen Wu. And then finally, a good um, one about insight in this last topic, we're talking about how to build insight. Is called. Um, there's a book um, called Internal um, Internalized Oppression by E. J. R. Davis. Okay. Well, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Thanks. Don't. Thanks so much again for uh, taking Absolutely. time. Absolutely. And uh, inshallah, uh, I think my wife and I will be coming to the conference this year. We want to go ahead and thank Dr. Mona Masood for uh, for for sharing. Just great information with us, taking the time to talk with us, and we want to thank our engineers over at WCEV. Uh, for making sure we come through loud and clear. And we thank our assistant producer, engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Baig, our executive producer, Abdul Malik Mujahid. I am your host and producer tonight, Tariq Alameen. Uh, we remind you that the views expressed of the host and uh, guests are theirs and are to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Inc. And with that, we look forward to talking to you tomorrow. We'll have Dr. Muhammad um, Khalifa on with us tomorrow. Have a great night. Believe you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be with you.